Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. Again, we're studying 1 Peter, and this morning we're going to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thank you, Father God, for this message, and I ask that you bless Gary as he comes up and explains it further to us. We've asked this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, good morning, PCC. Has your soul been replenished yet? Has your orientation uh, been uh, fixated or lifted up towards heaven, towards eternity? That's why we want to gather and need to gather every week to be replenished and to be reoriented towards the things that uh, are eternal. And I hope, my goodness, uh, check your pulse if that hasn't happened because this has been an amazing gathering with you. Let's pray together. Uh, Your Bibles are open, by the way, and your message notes are accessed, I hope. This is a Bring Your Own Bible, uh, BYOB series. And so if you don't have a Bible, grab a pew Bible uh, and take it home. You're welcome. It's our gift to you. Um, And open to 1 Peter. We're going to dig into it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what we've sung about, the reality that um, you came to earth, that you lived out everything Peter's going to talk about uh, when it comes to suffering. Thank you that only through you um, does suffering have a purpose that's greater than us. Lord, you know my prayer uh, all week, We, we need a new perspective on our lives and a new identity, and only you can do that. No great music, no rhetoric, nothing I do can bring that about. We are asking for your spirit to do a work. 
feed us, speak to us, open up that new perspective that we all uh, desperately need. Change us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone says, amen. All right, so last week we kicked off 1 Peter, and uh, context is everything. Uh, I hope whatever church you go into, uh, that is the basis of the church. Uh, Context is everything. And so we talked about the historical context that this book was written uh, to, a people on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, modern-day Turkey, and they were suffering for their faith. They felt alien. They were part of the Roman culture and at some point embraced a new lord. It wasn't Caesar. It wasn't the uh, polytheistic culture that God that their uh, colleagues were embracing, they were now declaring allegiance to the one true God, Jesus Christ. And in that culture, that was a threat uh, to the surrounding pluralistic culture. Let me tell you a little bit more why that was a threat. You know this, and this is history. You can Google this and find this all out. I'm going to capsulize this in about three or four minutes. The Romans were polytheistic. They worshiped multiple deities, that influenced every facet of life. Last week, we talked about the persecution under Nero and the emperor that followed him, Domitian, which was brutal for followers of Christ. But let's just talk about everyday life. Let's talk about life outside the Colosseum where you would uh, be persecuted or outside Nero's backyard where as followers of Christ, you were tortured and lit on fire for his backyard palace parties. Let's just talk about commerce. You're a follower of Christ, and now you're entering into the Agora, which every major city or town has. But to get into the Agora, you had to make an offering to the God of the Agora. What do you do when suddenly you have an allegiance to Jesus Christ, but you can't get in unless you make an offering to the Agora's God, small g, God? Suddenly that should influence and make a difference in your life somehow, affect your life. Let's talk about education. Your kids are inundated with cultural teaching that runs contrary now to your faith, specifically in the area of polytheism. You send your kids off to school in the Roman Empire and they're being inundated with the multitude of gods that are in the Roman culture. But at home, you're teaching allegiance to one God and only one God. Let's talk about entertainment. You go to the theater. You didn't have an option like we do around here. There was no Fandango back then where you pick the theater you want to go to. Netflix didn't exist, obviously. There was one theater. It was live. And in the pre-performance commercials, there are displays walking in, promoting festivals coming, worshiping uh, some of the polytheistic gods depending on the time of year. And suddenly you're realizing, oh my goodness, this is, this is crazy. I, I serve one true God. And then the theatrical content included worship in the theater that you would find offensive, actually, to your faith. Let's go even, even into more everyday life. Let's talk about hygiene. Unless you were rich in the Roman culture, you had to go to a bathhouse to bathe. And in the bathhouse, before it didn't bother you, it was co-ed. There was alcohol flowing. You would go in naked and with alcohol and nakedness in a Roman culture that would oftentimes lead to other activity. It didn't bother you before because your marriage in the Roman culture was only a functional thing to produce heirs. You access prostitutes and other, uh, other people from temples to satisfy your desires. It was just a desire, like eating sex was. But now you're a Christian, and you're following the one true Lord who has a counter cultural mandate on marriage. We'll get to that in chapter three. 
What do you do? You can't go to the bathhouse anymore. And you smell. And you can't shop for food. And maintaining a job is tough. Now put over that the layer of uh, the regional deities and the ultra-nationalism ultra that the Romans have with their gods. And now you're a threat. Because if you're not worshiping those gods, you're against the Roman Empire. Actually, the Christians in the first, second, third century, you can Google all this, right? Take, don't take my word for it. They were called atheists because they didn't follow this, this pantheon of gods. And they were a threat. This is the community that Peter writes to. They had to worship literally underground in the graveyards, in the catacombs. Sunday wasn't a day off for them when they worshiped. It was a work day. So they would have to get up real early, worship in secret places, be blamed when things went wrong. This, my friends, is the exilic experience that they were living. Uh, the Romans were only polytheistic. They were extremely paranoid. And now you're a threat. No wonder Peter in chapter 1, verse 1, calls them exiles. The word means alien, refugees. Now, that's a word we know about in our culture, right? Refugees. We actually minister to refugees, uh, mainly in Europe, who are coming out of Syria and northern Africa. We've had an incredible ministry over there. Refugees, as you know, live in a vulnerable existence, suffering, discrimination. They're incredibly um, uh, vulnerable mistreatment. They're cut off from their homeland. They're between lands. They're not fully at home in a refugee camp or in their country that they moved to. They're not home or welcome where they came from. They're between two worlds, if you will, and they're vulnerable. Objects of discrimination, sometimes persecution, failing to blend in to their new culture because of the color of their skin, their language, their religious practices, or their cultural customs. Friends, this is the people that Peter wrote to. And this, my friends, is the identity that he says we're to have spiritually. We are spiritual refugees. We are spiritual aliens. We are spiritual exiles. Peter's reminding them, in this, of one of the key story arcs throughout Scripture. If you don't get my weekly email, you can text that number and write Gmail, or you can grab a card, write Gmail, or go to the website. I'm going to send you uh, data on this. The whole story arc of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is around this identity. We are exiles. So how does this apply to us in 2020? You might think, that's a foreign world. That doesn't apply to me. How does it apply to us? We're seemingly on the peninsula. We fit in so well. As we strive to follow Jesus, we will stand out, my friends, as alien, exilic to our prevailing surrounding culture. And I do want to say and put a caveat around here, uh, a key to our mission and the way we engage our city and peninsula. We are not against culture. We love the city. We love the peninsula. We want to engage culture to redeem culture. Okay, and we stand out, though, not because of the color of our skin or our ethnic background or our language, but because of our allegiance to a different king and the lifestyle he produces through us. That creates a pressure for followers of Christ. And the original readers of Peter's letter were tempted to give up and to say this suffering is way too much and to go back 
to being primarily Roman before their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that's a temptation for us, maybe not to abandon the faith, although many do, but to give up our passion for following Christ. Because at some point, that passion for Christ will run smack into the culture. And the culture will push back. And what do we do in times like that? We will be misunderstood. We will be labeled as followers of Christ. We will be seen increasingly more and more as a threat. So the whole reason Peter wrote this letter, by the way, do you feel that at all? It's okay not to. I'm just asking, do you feel that at all? Alien, different. Turn to chapter 5, verse 12, and let's see why Peter wrote this book. The whole reason he wrote this book, he said this, with the help of Silas, with whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written you briefly. So Peter dictated this letter. He's in prison. Uh, so Silas is his, it's called an amanuensis. He wrote the letter for him. Paul had one as well. He says, Silas is writing this. I'm dictating it. Encouraging you and testifying. This is the key part. This is the true grace of God. Circle that. Because Peter in this whole letter, true grace of God, is saying this pressure is a privilege. It's a gift from the Lord. The very fact that you're getting pushed back and getting persecuted for your faith, you see that as hard, and I don't want to diminish any suffering in the room. We're going to actually minister to that by the end of my time. But he says, it's a gift. He's saying, I'm writing to reframe your circumstance, the pressure you're experiencing. It's a privilege, and I want to give you a game plan on how to withstand that pressure. We all need that. What do you need when times are tough? You need a perspective and you need a strategy. You need an internal perspective. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what Peter does in chapter 1, verse 3 to 12. He lays out an eternal perspective. I got some questions for you. Why does a two-year-old scream when they have to wait for five minutes for a meal? Why do soccer parents yell and go ballistic when the ref makes a bad call on the field? Why does a teenager feel like a loser when they're not asked to winter formal? What's the thread that goes through all those? They lack perspective, right? Why are these gatherings are so important, my friends? Why it's so important we're here in the flesh with each other, mingling with each other is because the whole design of this weekly experience commanded by God in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, is a reorientation towards eternity. There is nothing in your week like this one hour. And then we go out and we live it. Sunday afternoon, back to Sunday morning, and we're inundated with messages and cultural pressure that says, no, 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 all that matters is, is your uh, birthday date to the grave. And then we have to come back in and we celebrate God's grace like we've done. And we say, great is his faithfulness. We're still here. And we reorient ourselves again toward eternity. That's perspective. We also need a strategy. And that's what happens in verse uh, 13 of chapter 1 through the rest of the book. Look at the first word of verse 13 of chapter 1. What's the first word in your Bibles? Come on, you can talk back. Therefore, right? Therefore, in light of that perspective, here's how to live. And for the next five chapters, he'll explain that. Here's how you live. And I told you who was originally hearing those words. They really needed it. We do too. Turn to page two and let's get this perspective. Really important, okay? He gives them a perspective on their salvation, a perspective on their suffering, 
and her perspective on God's silence. Ever ask, where are you, God? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Let's go first. Perspective on their salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3. Ready? Praise be to the God. By the way, I told you the life they were living in the outskirts of culture. And Peter writes to encourage them. First thing out of his mouth when they're suffering is praise God. I mean, it's the last thing you'd expect to hear. When's the last time you did that, right? That, but but there's, a, there's a reason he does this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope. That's Peter's definition of salvation, by the way. A new birth and a living hope. Uh, that you are forward thinking. Remember I told you the story arc of the Bible is one of exile. Remember people in the Exodus traveling through the desert? What got them through the hard for 40 years? The hope of a promised land. Peter's pulling that into their existence. A new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish. That word means it's undestructible. It's better than FDIC insured. It will never spoil. That means it's unstained. That's what that word means, unstained. It will never fade. It's unending. This inheritance is kept. I love that word. It means to uh, put a guard around. To put a guard around. It's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So we need to understand, I'm going to try to uh, do this for us, the perspective that Peter's getting across. There's a future he's saying to them. I know it's hard. It's brutal. But there's a future waiting for you that it's going to make it all worth it. Salvation, you see it in here, it's a word that simply means God rescuing us. You ready for this? The process of restoring us into who we would be without sin. The process of restoring and remaking you inside into the person you would be and should be without sin. How many of you, if you're roommates, okay, and, and outside of marriage, or if you're married and inside of marriage and your spouse is your roommate, how many of you would love to live with a sinless roommate? We all would, right? Salvation is our greatest hope. While we age and our body decays, you know your body's decaying, right? Okay, I used to have a full head of hair at one point, right? Um, inside, our spirit is growing, and the, the whole goal of God through the power of his Holy Spirit is to make us more and more like Christ. It's the greatest gift we could ever, ever be given. If we could only see what we've been rescued from, Paul, Peter is putting right before them this amazing experience, like he's saying, remember who you are. Do you understand anew what Jesus has done for you? So I've already read um, a couple books in 2020, no big deal, but the, uh, the first book I read in 2020 might very well be my favorite of 2020. It's a book by a guy named Max Lucado. Ever heard of him? Prolific author. And he wrote a book called Anxious for Nothing, 
Finding Calm in a Chaotic World. I would highly recommend this book. Uh, it's all on Philippians 4 uh, in the command, be anxious for nothing. But after he points out the epidemic in our culture that anxiety and worry has, it is skyrocketing in our culture, skyrocketing in epidemic proportions, uh, especially in the younger generation. He talks about the difference Jesus should make, and he closes the book uh, with a couple lines that I have made a daily declaration for myself. He says, I have a God who's, he says, listen to this, I have a God who's in Christ crazy about me. I have the forces of heaven to monitor and protect me. I have the living presence of Jesus in me. In Christ, I have everything. Jesus gives me a joy that can never be taken, a grace that will never expire, a wisdom that will ever increase. Jesus is my fountain of living hope that will never be exhausted. Friends, that's salvation. That's what Peter's talking about. And he's saying from God's perspective, yeah, the Romans can ostracize you. Yes, they can physically torture you. Yes, they can see you as a threat and threaten you. But what you have in Christ will never, ever, ever be taken away. No threat. Nothing that happens on this earth will ever diminish what God is holding for you here on this earth and in heaven. God's perspective on our salvation. Many times I find when I'm suffering, the biggest challenge in my life, and and my goodness, compared to what these people are going through when Peter writes this letter, compared to what some of you are or have gone through, it's hard for me to say I've suffered. But many times what is suffering to me, my perspective is so myopic. I am so inundated with the here and now. And what Peter's doing is trying to broaden their perspective and have them focus on what we should always be focused on as followers of Christ, eternity. Have you ever heard the statement, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Yeah, that's not in the Bible at all. You know that, right? As a matter of fact, the other is true in the Bible. We can't be heavenly minded enough. I would actually say, we are so little heavenly minded, we are no earthly good as followers of Christ. Because we have nothing to offer the world. We suffer just like they suffer. Um, Our social statistics are simply mirror the social statistics of the world. There's something different in the life of a follower of Christ. I got to move on. He goes right into the suffering perspective then, verse six to eight. He says, in all this, not their sufferings, the this there refers to their salvation, okay? That this is their salvation. You greatly rejoice, present tense, not you will, not you're gonna, you know, it's gonna stink in life until you get to heaven. He's saying right now in the midst, remember what their present day circumstances were. He says, you have reason for joy, even in the midst of that. Though for now, for a little while, and that's Peter's way of saying, put your 80 years in perspective of eternity. It will seem like a little while, a thousand years from now. You have had to suffer grief. Circle that word. Circle that word. Uh, That word grief, uh, the Greek language which this was written uh, is very descriptive. Most of our words, one word means a wide range. The Greeks didn't do that. Very descriptive. There was, a, there was a, a numerous words for grief. This is the most extreme word for grief. It's actually used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he swept blood. 
So let's not diminish what they're going through or what we're going through. He says, you know what? And I love that. Following Christ doesn't diminish our pain. It just puts it in perspective. You have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven testing of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even refined by fire. Peter uh, accesses probably the most valuable thing in that day in the Roman culture. They didn't have banks. You couldn't store money away. Uh, your wealth was in what you had in your home or what you buried or what you kept to yourself. It was gold. So Peter says the greatest thing on the planet isn't even worth what your faith is worth. Now I want us to do a gut check right here. And I ask this very humbly to followers of Christ. If you're not a follower of Christ, uh, listen in, but I'm talking just to brothers and sisters in Christ. In your value system... Where do you place the value of your faith, of a relationship with Jesus? Peter just said, your relationship with Christ, oh my goodness, the way it was meant to work was it was to be the greatest thing in your life. That you wouldn't sell out for anything when it comes to Christ. Now, I I want you to ask if you're a follower of Christ, uh, if that's the case, praise God, and I don't think we're all growing, right? So grace to all of us. But if it's not, have you considered what is it in my life and confess it to God, Lord, get me there. I want you to be my all-encompassing value and greatness for all my life. So I don't turn back when the pressure heats up. I don't turn back when I can't uh, go to the, the bathhouse anymore. And I don't turn back when I can't go to the Agora because I won't worship those gods. And I don't turn back when I'm threatened because you're greater than that. And then he says, not only is it greater for us and we do benefit from that, but there's a whole perspective we're blind to. We are part of a great arena of faith, of angelic beings, spiritual beings. You know what they're doing right now in every act of obedience? They're going, yes, look at that. It's awesome. Not only are they angelic beings, we're told we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Revelation builds out. There are martyrs who gave their lives for this faith. I know this is kind of, I'm, I'm putting your mouth to a fire hydrant here. Um, but the martyrs are going, yes, every act of obedience. They're saying in the heavenly, worshiping Jesus, going, you're so worth it. The kingdom's advancing. Through the pain, they're walking in faith. Am I making sense? Am I just, Bishop, am I making sense? Okay. He says, though you not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy because you're receiving the result of your faith. The salvation, remember that word means to deliver. Not of your circumstances. Do you see that? Not of a problem to a problem free life, but the salvation of your souls. The age old question why do we suffer? I've got the definitive answer. You ready? Everyone, can I get your attention? I have no idea. I don't know. 
I can't answer that. I listed on the top of page three, six biblical reasons why suffering uh, happens in Scripture. And you can look that up and, and let God minister to you. I don't want to diminish him. And Peter certainly isn't diminishing any pain. And my goodness, the pain in this room is palpable, what you've walked through. You are heroic in my eyes, what you have walked through, many of you. But I know this, the goal of our faith is not to have God fix everything, in this life, but to fix our greatest dilemma. Our greatest dilemma is this. How am I going to be in relationship with the God of the universe when I'm a sinful rebel? The goal of your faith is to fix that dilemma and then to use you to make a difference on this earth. And when you know you and God are right, that stirs in you a joy at the core of who you are. No threat can take away. Uh, no um, cultural boundary can take away because you can't access the agora or the bathhouses or the theater or the schools or anything like that. There's something in you that is just stirring. I, I've been reading a little bit about uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you know that name, but she, 50 years ago, actually 53 years ago now, uh, was a 17-year-old, was in a diving accident in the lake, and it's a 17-year-old that left her as a quadriplegic. Um, and she, three years ago, wrote on the 50th anniversary of life in a wheelchair, her reflections. Think about a teenage girl, and everything is taken away from her as far as use of arms and legs. And she's been used amazingly. I actually first came in contact with that name uh, before I was even a Christian. There, and when I was a teenager, my brother took me to a movie on her life that played in theaters all across the country. She says this at the 50th anniversary. She says, what a difference time makes, as well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, and a deep study of God's word. All combined, I have seen there are more important things in life than walking or using my hands. It sounds incredible, but I've written, listen to this, I would really rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus than to be on my feet without him. Uh, by the way, about five years ago, she found out she had cancer in addition to being a quadriplegic. She says, whenever I begin to explain it, I hardly know where to begin. You hear that story time and time again from followers of Christ. What has God done in those 50 years? Uh, well, let me, I chronicled some of it. Her life was a feature film. She's traveled to 47 countries. She's a famous artist. She uh, puts a paintbrush or a charcoal pen in her mouth and has made incredible art through it. She's authored over 50 books, sat on councils for tons of presidents, uh, both Democratic and Republican. Tens of thousands of people are ministered to through camps that her ministry runs. All because God uses suffering for a greater purpose. See, friends, we can't judge God's goodness by the mess we're in. What Peter's saying is you got to judge it by the future you have and invite God into the mess. Christianity, I think, is one of the only faith systems that doesn't diminish your circumstances, doesn't turn a blind eye to them, but reframes them through the power of Jesus Christ and the perspective of eternity. So what does Peter do? He gives a perspective of their salvation. He gives a perspective of their suffering. He gives a perspective of the silence that we don't have time to go into. I'm going to let you sit in that last part and invite the Holy Spirit to minister to you. But I will say this, one last thing on that last part. 
He says, even angels are longing to look into these things. He's saying, this gospel is so rich. Even the angels are discovering new things about it. By the way, we're living it out. And I just bring that up because so many times uh, I feel innately and I hear, oh, the gospel, that's just like the doorway to get into the Christian life. Then you close it and you get onto the meat. Don't tell the angels that. Because they are, they are mesmerized by this good news. They're looking at our lives and the way we're living it out in 2020 here on the peninsula. And they are marveling at how good the gospel is. And they're worshiping, they're going, man, praise God. And they keep looking, I don't want to miss it. And they keep looking down, oh my goodness. Oh, that's awesome. Look at them. Oh, they're fighting for faith. This gospel's amazing. Kind of puts our lives in a whole different perspective, doesn't it? So we're going to close. You've had a perspective starting next week. Actually, we're doing a pulpit swap. So I'll be at Central Peninsula Church in Foster City. You get another bishop, Mark Mitchell, been serving on this peninsula 33 years, okay, and going strong. He'll be here with us next week. He's an incredible uh, teacher of God's word. But what I want to say to us is this. Don't mistake suffering or God's silence for God's absence. That's the whole point of the perspective. I know, trust me, um, again, I, you're heroic in my eyes through what you've suffered. It doesn't mean God's absent. God wants to reframe that for us all. He wants to use it to build Christ-like character and to expand the kingdom of God. So as we pray, I want to pray with our eyes open today. And I'm going to invite us, uh, for those who are in the room who feel like, wow, that really touched me. If, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ uh, and you want to enter in that salvation, we and Jesus offers it as a gift. You can just say yes to Jesus. There's actually a card in the back of all the pews where you can see what that means. I want to invite your prayer. It could be yes. Okay, yes. In light of eternity, my greatest dilemma being reconnected with you, I want to be in relationship with you. Yes, Jesus. If you're suffering today, and it may not be for your faith, but your suffering is very real, I want to pray for you. And I'm going to pray as we pray with our eyes open that as we pray, I'm going to give you a time to raise your hand because you're hurting. It doesn't matter what it is. It's your hurt. Because here's, here's my biggest fear of being a pastor of a church. I never want to be a pastor of a church where you have to put your church face on and come to church where this is a place so safe that the worst of you could be known. Your pain, your hurts, your hangups, your habits. And you wouldn't be loved less, but more in the telling of it. That's how the community of Christ was meant to work. So if you're in pain, in a minute, I'm going to invite you. Our eyes are open to raise your hand. And I'm going to invite people around you to put a hand on you so that we can pray together for you. Thank you. Here's someone. Can we put a hand on Henry? Why don't we just do that right now? If you're hurting, just, just raise a hand. You came in here today. You're hurting. One over here. Thank you, Kathy. In the back. Look around. Come on. Our eyes are open. And let's put hands around. Kathy, can you just raise your hand a little bit? Raise your hand. We've got a couple right there. My hands virtually are on you. Raise a hand. Suffering, hurting. In the back, we got you. Right there. We have a couple here. Right behind you is a couple. Put a hand on them over here. 
Rick, is your hand up? Okay. Did you have a hand up? Does someone have a hand up? That is your hand up, Rick? Okay. Ken, can you put a hand on Rick, please? Oh, it is. Great. Okay. Anyone else you're hurting? Just want the body of Christ right here. Can I get someone to cross the pew? Come on, we can cross the pew, cross the line for people. I hope, I, I know this is a bit awkward, but my goodness, people, if, if we can't do this, what are we doing, right? Anyone else? You're hurting. Just want prayer. You know what compassion means? Compassion is a compound word with suffering. And I just want you to know if you're suffering, this act of hands on you means you're not in it alone. When you hurt, we hurt. Let's pray. Father, we lay hands on our sisters and brothers, not because we have power, but because you do. And we want to physically represent the fact that our sisters and our brothers don't suffer alone that we're in it with them, even if it's just for these few seconds of laying hands on them. And we trust you for the connections and where this goes from here. But if I know anything, I know that you've created the body of Christ to be just that, a body that's in it together. So Jesus, I pray for your perspective in the midst of the suffering. I pray for your intervention. I pray for your power to be released, uh, for remedy for wholeness, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in the midst of this pain as it is in heaven. I pray for endurance for our sisters and brothers, that they every day could just have manna from you. All we have a guarantee of is today, this moment. And then they'll trust you tomorrow for new fresh manna, a new moment. And then the next day and the next day. Lord, I pray your presence would be so palpable that their lives would be supernatural in the midst of pain. Not denying the pain, but living, Lord, with it in a way that's kingdom. Give us grace to suffer with them, to be a community that recognizes we're in the midst of hurting people. We love you, we need you. Jesus, thank you that one day this will all make sense until then, in the midst of what seems like silence from heaven, give us the strength to endure. For we pray it in Christ's name. And everyone said, Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.